Today is uh, the last day, day seven, of our summer seven-day session. Uh, it's the 14th of January, 2021. And as I mentioned yesterday, we're going to take up another koan from the Hekigaroku, the Blue Cliff Record. And this one is uh, number 18, the National Teacher's Seamless Monument. And I'll read the whole thing first. Emperor Daiso asked the national teacher who was on his deathbed, after a hundred years, what will you need? The national teacher said, build a seamless monument for this old monk. The emperor said, please tell me, master, what the monument should look like. The national teacher was silent for a long time. Then he asked, Do you understand? No, I do not, said the emperor. The national teacher said, I have a disciple to whom I have transmitted the teaching, Tangan, who is well versed in this matter. Please summon him and ask him about it. After the national, national teacher passed on, the emperor summoned Tangen and asked him about it. Tangen recited, South of Sho and north of Tan, in between there is gold sufficient to a nation. Beneath, beneath the, shadowest, the shadowless tree a community ferryboat. No holy one in the Emerald Palace do you see. So um, his poem is also each line has a comment by Secho, um, and we'll take those up when we, we get to looking at this poem. So first, first we'll um, uh, just look at a little bit of the biographical material for these um, three characters in the story, Emperor Daiso, the national teacher, and Tangan, his disciple. The, um, the, the biographical material is, is spread over um, several different uh, sources, so just bear with me as I um, go through these. So Emperor Daiso, um, we don't need a lot of his um, biographical material to put him into context. Um, just he was at the time Emperor of China and a student of the national teacher. He also appears in um, another koan, um, also in the Hikigan Roku, number 99, or it may be his brother. Because the um, or if the um, this national teacher um, he was teacher to three different emperors Xuanzong, Suzong, and Daizong. This one um, in this story is Daizong. So his Chinese and uh, the national teacher's Chinese name, Nanyang Huizhong, is a Japanese form Nanyo Echu. And his dates are given as 675 to 775, so it appears that he lived a hundred years. He was a student of the sixth an ancestor, Hui Nung. And the, in the um, record of his life, an uh, old record, it, it reports that he did not speak a single word to the, until he was the age of 16. And uh, that he would never cross the bridge in front of his parents' house. Um, I think it was Einstein who didn't speak until he was maybe four, 
four years old. It's not necessarily a sign of deficit. One day as a Chan master was approaching the house, he ran over the bridge to the master and request him to ordain him as a monk and accept him as a student. The master, who recognised the boy's great potential, sent him to the monastery of Hui Nung. Hui Nung told him that he would be a Buddha standing alone in the world, accept him him as a student, and later confirmed him as his Dharma ancestor. After long training under the sixth ancestor, Huainang, Nanyang went into seclusion for 40 years on Mount Baya, Hakugai in Japanese. This was in order to uh, deepen his realization of Chan. There's a little bit more information about this this um, 40 year seclusion. Um, and Robert Aitken yeah, it said that after Hui Nung's death, Wei Jong retired to the mountains of what is now Honan province and remained there 40 years without ever emerging, living and practicing in a small temple with a single companion uh, named uh, Jing Sol Shan. His, his reputation, however, spread widely, and the emperor, Suzong, repeatedly invited him to come to Chang'an, the capital. Finally, in 761, he agreed to go, uh, Jing Tsou Shan, however, scolded him for his decision, declaring that it was too soon <laughs> for Hui Zhang to become a teacher. And, and, and uh, Aitken adds, a kalpa of practice and realization isn't enough. Many, many people who are teaching would, would uh, resonate with, with Aitken's statement. His companion remained behind. We hear no more about him. One of my students suggested that Hui Zhang uh, felt free to re-enter the city because his friend remained behind for solitary practice. The two of them continued to be a pair, pair and Hui Zhang was inspired in his busy life of teaching by the constant zazen of his faraway friend. So after after Hui Zhang left this this the hermitage, his his home of, of forty years, um, he he took up residence in a monastery right in Chang'an, the capital. Um, it must have been a, a a huge contrast between his his life as a hermit and his life of teaching in the midst of the capital city of the China of the time. Um, he gave lectures in the palace and instruction to the emperor. So he, he started off with one emperor, and then that emperor died, and then um, he, he continued to teach the, the, his successor. Um, and in some, in some sources it talks about his teaching three, if you remember, as it's already mentioned. And there, there are um, various stories in the, in, the, in the Khan collection about um, the national teacher and... Um, the emperor. Um, John Wu adds a little bit more about about um, the national teacher. 
when he when he was first in the capital and um, brought in to have an audience with the emperor. Apparently the emperor asked him many questions, but he did not even look at the emperor. The latter became annoyed, saying, I am the emperor of the great Tang. How is it that my master does not even deign to look at me? Hui Zheng asked him in turn, Does your majesty see the empty space? Yes, replied the emperor. Then Wei Zheng asked again, Does the empty space wink at your majesty? And this concluded the conversation. <laughs> There's also a story about his severe um, teaching methods. And this relates to his treatment of his disciple and attendant, uh, Dan Yuan, who's the very one who appears in the second half of our story. In this Japanese the form of his name, Tangan. One day, one of Wei Zheng's younger friends, uh, Dan Xia, came to call on him. Wei Zheng happened to be taking a nap. When Dan Xia asked uh, Dan Yuan uh, whether the master was at home, Dan Yuan, who had just been initiated into Chan, which means he just experienced some first awakening, Kensho, replied, At home he is, only he is not to be interviewed by any guest. Dan Xia remarked, You are being too profound and remote. Not even the Buddha eye can see him, Dan Yuan added. Thereupon Dan Xia remarked sarcastically, Indeed, it takes a dragon to beget a little dragon, and a phoenix to bear a baby phoenix, and went away. When the master got up, Dan Yuan reported Dan Sha's visit and the interesting conversation that had taken place. To the great surprise of Dan Yuan, the master gave him twenty blows with his cane and drove him away from his door. When Dan Sha heard of this, he said, it is not for nothing that Wei Zheng has been honoured as national teacher. This anecdote is important as a warning to all students of Chan. A Chan insight is valuable in itself, but when a neophyte uses the first opportunity that comes his way, he is apt to be like a child of three playing with a razor, cutting everything he could reach and ending up by cutting his own fingers. Dan Yuan must have been wise, become wiser after this painful experience, for eventually he became Wei Zheng's successor. So what was it about his behavior that so um, exercised his teacher? Well, it's, there's, a, there's a word for it in Zen. It, 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 it was, had a Zen stink. In other words, he suddenly was, was engaging in some kind of dharma, um, dialogue with this this guest who sounds like he had some understanding as well uh, rather than just doing his job and being being ordinary with him so that's that's the that's what's behind this this uh, um, uh, beating he got and I think probably most of us feel um, Feel some reaction though to the fact that he was subject to these these uh, twenty blows. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine um, corporal punishment, so to speak, having any place in in uh, Zen, in modern Zen. Um, but there's a story even even at the time of of Shu Yun, Empty Cloud, who who was this great. Uh, Chinese Chan master of the first half of the 20th century there is a story told in his biography his autobiography of he his getting really sick and arriving at a temple and being expected to fulfill particular duties that he'd kind of signed up for before and he he's too sick to do them but he doesn't tell anybody he's sick and he receives a beating for um, not meeting his commitments, I guess. And so clearly 
even in mid twentieth century, corporal punishment was was happening in monasteries, and uh, you know it's hard to reconcile it with with uh, the teachings really, physical violence against somebody. Uh, I mean, I mean, blows and shouts are part of part of old Zen, but that's different from being beaten. I'd like to um, check with with um, Dharma friends in the in the Chinese Buddhist community and see what their attitude now is would be to such a thing and whether it still happens in monasteries. But another point, another point we can just take from the story is um, that people mature. He he behaved in kind of a silly, childish way with this 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 guest, um, and got a scolding, possibly more than a scolding, um, and uh, became became he, he ripened and was eventually made uh, Wei Zheng's successor and appears in our story. last little bit here about the national teacher a monk once asked him what is the mind of the old Buddha Kokshu Kokshi answered tiles pebbles and walls do they understand preaching? The monk asked. They preach intensely and unceasingly. They preach intensely and unceasingly. Can we hear the tiles and the pebbles and the walls and what they're preaching? The wind the birds. Another monk asked him, what is the true body of the Dharmakaya Buddha? Fetch me the water bottle, said Kokushi. When the monk brought it to him, he said, put it back where it was. The monk, having done what he was asked to do, repeated his former question. Kokushi said, Alas, the old Buddha has long gone. What was it that the monk missed? Right now we'll just turn to our, our case, um, which is quite long, so we can we can break it down into two parts. There's, there's the conversation between the national teacher and the emperor, and then um, Tangan's response when asked about this seamless monument later on by the emperor. Emperor Daiso asked the national teacher who was on his deathbed, after a hundred years, what will you need? Um, saying after a hundred years, what will you need is a kind of delicate, uh, indirect or polite Chinese way of saying after you die. Um, and we can... We can um, Take it as an ordinary question. He wants he wants to know um, what he can do for for his teacher, um, and he held him in deep respect. There is there is a, another story about how when when um, 
the national teacher first came to the, to Chang'an, that the emperor actually went out and greeted him when he arrived, uh, which would have been unheard of considering the, the difference in their status. And, he, and even another version of the story which said he put himself into the um, uh, harnesses of the, of the carriage in which he arrived and pulled Or maybe it was a maybe it was a, a palanquin. I'm not sure if they had carriages there. But anyway, he showed his deep respect. So the national teacher says, build a seamless monument for this old monk. A seamless monument. It was it was common for um, a pagoda to be built when a monk died and his his relics, his um, ashes, and especially these these crystals that form when somebody's in, um, uh, cremated would be then placed inside the pagoda. Um, and these, there's still a lot of these having survived um, all over China. But a seamless monument, a seamless monument would be one without any joins or edges all of a piece. So if he's if he's not talking about a literal pagoda, which of course uh, intricate constructions of many many different elements, what is he talking about? The Emperor says, please tell me, Master, what the monument should look like. So he, he may, may be that he's flummoxed. He doesn't know what the national teacher is talking about. Or it could be that he does have some idea, but he's, he's playing along. The national teacher was silent for a long time. Then he asked, Do you understand? So what is it? This, he was silent for a long time. And then, and then eventually he said, Do you understand? This is one of the, the points if you're working on this koan is to demonstrate his, his non-speech. Tenke comments on this, look and see what this is. Look and see. We, we could say that, that the seamless monument is what every Zen teacher wants his or her disciples to build. When when the teacher asks the emperor if he understands, he says, no, I do not. W one way to understand this is just that he's, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what he's referring to or pointing at. And there are quite a few koans where the emperor plays this role. You know, doesn't doesn't get very good press in terms of of Chan understanding. We have the, the, the first example being Emperor Wu of Liang who's, who has the encounter with Bodhidharma and, and he asks what merit he's received from, from building so many temples and, and supporting so many practitioners, monks and nuns and, and Bodhidharma says no merit of all, at all. And then, then the Empress says, well, 
tell me what the highest teaching is in Bodhidharma says vast emptiness, nothing holy and then the emperor says well who are you then if there's nothing holy who are you standing before me and Bodhidharma says I don't know and then, then afterwards somebody asks the emperor if he understood what Bodhidharma was talking about and he says I don't know. I don't know what. I have no idea. So we could we could under, we could read this. Um, no, I do not. As just a kind of that same, duh. Or, or he could be answering in another way. Can can the seamless mon monument be? understood can it can it be pinned down so the national teacher doesn't explain anything at this point um, we have to remember he was on his deathbed and so he says I have a disciple whom I've transmitted the teaching to Tangan who is well versed in this matter please summon him and ask him about it was it was it that he hoped that later on the emperor would be the emperor would be ripe and would be able to understand So we don't we don't we're not told how much later, but the national teacher does summon Tangan and tells him what happened. And Tangan then says this poem. South of Sho and north of Tang. In between there is gold sufficient to a nation. Beneath, beneath the shadowless tree a community ferryboat. No holy one in the emerald palace you see. And there's a, there's a comment on each line by Setro, the first of the two compilers of the, the Hekigan Roku. So we'll just have a look at each, each of these lines. Here. South of Sho and north of Tan. Um, apparently, these were two places that were um, at the borders of the, the area where Chan was in was flourishing at that time. Um, it's an it was a, a way of saying everywhere as we might say um, say from Cape Ranger to Bluff throughout the entire land south of Sho and north of Tan in between there is gold sufficient to a nation we're surrounded by treasure Dawn to dusk, everywhere we turn, there's treasure, gold sufficient to the nation. But we miss it. We miss this treasure. We, we, it's, a, it's there in plain sight, and yet we don't see it. There's, um, there's a, a roomy story uh, about treasure it's about a, a, a poor man who uh, prays to Allah um, for help he supplicates him he's so destitute and and uh, without anything and in a dream he hears a voice say 
your fortune will be found in Cairo. And he's, he, he's living in Baghdad. Go to Cairo, to such and such an address, and there you will find a great treasure. And so this man um, is, is overjoyed. He, he's filled with gratitude to Allah, and he goes traveling all the way uh, from Baghdad to Cairo. Uh, and when he, when he gets there, he's hungry and exhausted, and he decides to, to um, go begging in the, at night. But um, he's arrested and beaten by a, a night patrol, but unbeknownst to him, there's a curfew in the city. And um, this night patrol is going to throw him into prison. And the man pleads with him to treat him with mercy. And then this, this night patrol guy questions him. And, um, and finally, the poor man tells the story as, on, as honestly as he, as he can of his dream uh, of the treasure to be found in this particular street and house in Cairo, and the night patrol scoffs at him, really. He says, you're not a, I can see you're not a villain, you're not a thief. You're plainly a good man, but what a foolish man you are to think that, that you can base such a long and arduous journey from Baghdad to Cairo on the flimsy premise of a fantasy, a mere dream. I've dreamed many times of a treasure on such and such a street in your city, Baghdad, buried in such and such a quarter and in such and such a street, but have never been so foolish as to believe in its existence. The, the poor man is flabbergasted because the, the street that the night guard mentions was none other than his own. And so quietly he rejoices and eventually um, sets off as soon as he can back to Baghdad, praising God, and when he gets home, digging in his own basement and keeping on digging in different passes and, and, and in different places in this basement and digging and digging and digging, and finally he discovers the pot of gold. Right where we are is the treasure. What what is is lacking so often is the effort to to look to dig to see what is right there in our own backyard so to speak in our own hearts and minds One of the th one of the things that that um, poets can do for us in this regard is um, to help us to see to see the treasure that is right in front of us. Pulled out a couple of poems that that. Um, point in different ways to this treasure. The first one is, is a poem by Mar Mar Mary Oliver called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, 
who was gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? What is really essential? What do we long for? What is it that on our deathbed we will regret not having done or seen or understood? The, the other poem I wanted to read to people is, is um, a humorous one. It's called, Because Even the Word Obstacle is an Obstacle. Try to love everything that gets in your way. The Chinese woman, women in flowered bathing caps murmuring together in Mandarin, doing leg exercises in your lane while you execute 36 furious laps one for every item on your to-do list. The heavy-bellied man who goes thrashing through the water like a horse with a harpoon stuck in its side, those breathless tsunamis rock you from your course. Teaches all. Learn to be small and swim through obstacles like a minnow without grudges or memory. Dart toward your goal, sperm to egg. Thinking, obstacle, is another obstacle. Try to love the teenage girl idly lounging against the ladder, showing off her new tattoo. Cette vie est la mienne. This life is mine. In thick blue-black letters on her ivory instep. Be glad she'll have that to look at all her life. And keep going. Keep going. Swim by an uncle in the lane next to yours who is teaching his nephew how to hold his breath underwater even though kids aren't allowed in at this hour. Someday, years from now, this boy who is kicking and flailing in the exact place you want to touch and turn will be a young man in a, at a wedding on a boat, raising his champagne glass in a toast when a huge wave hits, washing everyone overboard. He'll come up coughing and spitting like he is now, but he'll come up like a cork, alive. So your moment of impatient must, impatience must bow in service to a larger story, because if something is in your way, it is going your way, the way of all beings, towards darkness, towards light. That's by Alison Luterman. So often, as she says, we can be impatient and miss the, the larger story, the wonder, the, the, the gold that is right in front of us. We see obstacles rather than treasures. The um, Citra's comment on this line south of Sho and north of Tarn 
um, is the soundless sound of one hand. Um, this became uh, particularly Hakuin's treasure as a koan uh, in its own right. May may know it more usually as the sound. What is the sound of one hand? Somebody commented that there's no place where we can't hear that sound. Wittgenstein said, if you know that there is one hand, we'll grant you all the rest. Citro's comment to the second line, in between there is gold sufficient to a nation, is uh, a rough-hewn staff. This uh, rough-hewn staff is a particular kind of staff that would be uh, carried by somebody on pilgrimage, and it would usually um, be quite long, longer than the person, tall, and it, it might still have bits of twigs or roots on one end of it. Uh, so pluck, it's sort of plucked from the forest as is without being, being uh, uh, refined in any way. Sekita has a comment on this. He, he says, um, a staff about seven feet long was used by a monk when he went journeying over hill and dale, visiting teachers or seeking a quiet spot in the mountains for his hermitage. It came to have a symbolic meaning, representing the living spirit of the Zen student and in turn the essence of Zen, the truth of the universe, and so on. Ummon, showing his staff to his disciples, once said, this staff transforms itself into a dragon and swallows up the universe. Where are the mountains, the rivers, and the great world? A rough-hewn staff means a staff which has not been shaped by human artifice, but has simply been made from a tree growing wild in a mountain forest. Hence it stands for bare, unadorned truth. Move. In one of the Mumonkan, um, in the commentary on one, one of the many koans there are about staffs, um, it says, it helps you cross the bridge when the bridge is broken down. It accompany you, accompanies you to the village on a moonless night. It helps you cross the bridge when the bridge is broken down when we don't know what, how we're going to get across some difficulty, some barrier. It accompanies you when you return to the village on a moonless night, when everything is dark, when you, you can't see the way ahead. Move. What is this? Breathe. Secho is uh, reminding us that this treasure, this gold that is in Tangan's poetry, is not is not something exotic. It's right in front of us in ordinary things. A bamboo staff. Call of a tui, breeze coming in the window, green leaves of the trees.
next two and last two lines, beneath the shadowless tree a community ferryboat, no holy one in the emerald palace you see. Beneath the shadowless tree the community ferryboat. Um, first, the first point in this, this line is the shadowless tree. If, if something's shadowless, then it's in some sense timeless. There's no um, circling of the planets, so to speak. Or else it's, it's insubstantial. In the, in the Heart Sutra we, we, we chant, form is only emptiness, emptiness only form. We all emerge out of this emptiness and return to it. For, for all our, our differences, this, we, sh we share this in common with, with all beings. Beneath this shadowless tree, the community ferryboat. Community ferryboat. So not a not a, a, a dinghy or a kayak, but public transport. A, a boat f to ferry everyone across to the other shore. All beings. Tenke says about this community ferryboat, when the world is at peace, those above and those below do not stay in those positions. They drink from the wells they dig. They eat from fields they cultivate. The quality of an ideal society under enlightened leadership is a, is a communal ferryboat under a shadowless tree. So, so Tenke was in, um, saying, writing this in, in the um, 17th century. And remember that, that uh, he was commenting on words of Tangan, who was talking to the emperor at the time. could say Tangan is also, also talking to us. Those above and those below do not stay in those positions. In other words, uh, people aren't stuck in, in the lowly state. There's, there's room for people to, to the social mobility, we could say. They drink from wells they dig, they eat from fields they cultivate. They're not under 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 um, slavery or indentured servitude. They 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 benefit from their work. There are many places where this is not the case. This this community ferry boat is is uh, it's an expression of the Mahayana ideal, you could say, of a a vehicle in which all beings are ferried to the other shore, the shore of liberation. Everybody gets a ticket. All aboard. But as Tenke does, we can also understand it as being um, uh, an ideal society, a vehicle which uh, excludes nobody. Right now, New Zealand has has a government that seems to want to do just this, to really create a community ferryboat, which brings everybody along, which benefits everybody. But they surely have a long, long way to go to close the gaps that have opened up in our society over these last 20, 30 years. The, the chasm between those who can afford to have a house and those who can't, for instance. And 
we need to play our part in helping to build this community ferry boat, this, this ark. Next line is, no holy one in the emerald palace you see. So imagine a, a beautiful palace on this other shore, the shore of liberation, and you enter this, this wonderful space, and to your surprise, there's not a single altar, not a single Buddha figure, no images of exalted ones. Why? This is one of the points of this con. to this um, line about the shadowless tree and the community ferry boat, Setro has a, a comment, um, clear as the river, calm as the sea. God's in his heaven and all's right with the world. His comment on the second line, um, no holy one in the emerald palace you'll see, is all is finished. The monuments built. Tenke says, the construction is finished. Everyone open your eyes and look. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.